So I, I mentioned uh, Catherine of Siena the other day, and I wanted to, I thought today might be a good moment to uh, put her in context. She was born uh, in the middle of the 14th century, uh, the 24th of 25 siblings. And uh, she was born into the uh, middle of the 14th century throughout Europe, was a very unhappy, dangerous, and um, painful place. Uh, curiously, the 14th century in Europe was also a time of, of a great, great contemplative schools. Um, it's almost as if these dark and dangerous times, these were the periods of the Black Death, the Hundred Years' War, uh, ecclesiastical corruption, internal wars, especially in Italy, uh, the divided papacy, the, one of the popes in Avignon, another one in Rome or somewhere. And yet, uh, throughout all of this time of, of, of death and conflict and uh, moral uh, confusion, or maybe because of that, uh, these contemplative networks uh, developed. The Friends of God, uh, the English mystics, uh, like the Cloud of Unknowing, Julian of Norwich, Richard Roll, uh, and later, uh, Little later, the um, the the, uh, the Rhineland mystics, so uh, the Jesuati, uh, the, the spiritual Franciscans, and so on. So very curious, curious curiously, really, one might think uh, these dangerous and dark times uh, maybe pushed people to a deeper, more radical spiritual life and practice. Uh, so Catherine, is, that's her context. Uh, she was the daughter of a prosperous merchant. Um, but at a very young age, uh, like all good saints, she decided to devote herself fully uh, to God. And she lived in seclusion as a, a third order Dominican, uh, which was itself a, a manifestation of being different because uh, she ought to have gone off to a convent if she wanted to devote herself to God, not stay at home. And if she was to stay at home, she should have got married. So she was, from a very young age, asserting her unique kind of sanctity. I said the other day that sanctity is really just about discovering and being yourself fully. So, uh, she lived a very ascetical life, and uh, as was the custom, uh, and had some very uh, profound mystical experiences, a mystical marriage uh, to, to, to Christ. Um, and, but uh, this didn't send her completely round the bend. Uh, it brought her to a, um, a conscience and a, and a compassion uh, which led her to, to come out of her cell and look after the poor and the sick of Siena. 
Um, and in this, I think w she often reminds me of two 20th century women saints about her age. Catherine died at the age of 33. Uh, and the other two I was thinking of were Simone Weil and uh, Etty Hillesum, both of whom had this sort of profound uh, interior, uh, mystical, contemplative awakening, and, um, but with a very passionate and loving uh, sense of service and compassion to, to others, in, this, in Simone Weil's case, very intense uh, sense of social justice and identification with the poor. So um, her mystical teaching as it, as it developed, as she wrote, concentrated upon self-knowledge, which resonates with what we've been talking about, and this self-knowledge that you enter into through deep prayer, deep stillness, uh, changes you. It is this force of transformation, of conversion. Um, my cell is self-knowledge, she says in one of her, uh, one of her writings. Um, my me is God, nor do I know myself except in God. Um, she had a, a kind of a near-death experience um, at the age of about 23. And uh, she survived that and emerged uh, into her public life, really. And from this uh, point on, for the next 10 years, um, she, like the Quakers, spoke to power. She uh, was constantly writing letters. We have 400 of her letters have survived to popes and emperors and uh, even to... Uh, Bernardo Tolomei, who founded Monte Oliveto, a few miles away. As his community began to develop, she wrote to him and told him off because she said, you're taking too many aristocratic monks. Uh, he came from an aristocratic family himself, so I suppose he attracted friends from his own class. So she said, you know, broaden your intake, <laughs> something. Uh, so she, and then she traveled to Italy, she went to um, Avignon, uh, she berated uh, uh, the Pope, and uh, uh, constantly spoke to power, the, the, the critical social issues of her time, from her experience. Um, the more I enter into this cell, the cell of her self-knowledge, she says, the more I find. And her great, her great insight really was that the deeper you go, the more you see things as they really are. So there's a clarity and incontrovertible truthfulness about, um, about this experience. And this is, this is how we can see the change that happens within. So the hot dog salesman in Times Square was not right. The change is all within. He was just trying to keep his money. Uh, but when this change happens within, it does uh, flow out, it ripples out. Um, 
into the world through prophetic action, through compassion, through whatever gifts um, you may have. So, today is a day of change. I don't know what um, Catherine of Siena would have thought about the UK referendum, but I imagine she would probably have written a letter to someone about it. <laughs> um, so, if you haven't heard the news, uh, the, the great British public uh, decided by quite a narrow margin, I think 3%, three to leave Europe. So, it's a big shock, of course, because knew, everyone knew it was a knife-edged decision. So, we won't... We, we won't um, some, somebody wrote to me uh, the other day, uh, or some time ago, and said, what, what is the world community's um, opinion about gay marriage? So I thought about it, and I, I thought I wrote back, and I said, "Well, we're not a church, we're not a uh, institution. Uh, so, if if you want to ask that question, you should write to the Vatican or to Canterbury. Uh, we are a contemplative community, and we have a broad range of uh, theology and uh, opinion on many topics, but." What unites us is a commitment to the practice and the teaching of the contemplative dimension of our faith. So I thought that was a pretty good answer. <laughs> and uh, he, he, he wrote back and said, cop out. <laughs> so uh, we probably have different opinions on the uh, Brexit. Uh, but what's uh, more important than sh discussing those opinions, or that's an important part of one's social responsibility, I suppose, is to, as I said, I was a bit shocked the other day when I met a young, prosperous businessman who just shut down when we started talking about politics. The politics just disturbed him. I mean, business was okay, we could have talked about business, or we could have talked about spirituality, or we could have talked about other things, but politics, too disturbing. So, uh, but what we can, I, I think, see today is an interesting uh, uh, illustration of change. So we've seen, uh, we knew this was coming, so we all know that we're going to change. But when it comes, it comes as a shock, like death. We all know it's going to come, but it will be a big thing when it does. Um, and at whatever level change happens, and I was speaking about, of course, the more superficial levels of, of change, uh, we could get stuck at this superficial level of constant change, uh, at whatever level change happens, it affects everything, because everything is connected. You can't really contain change, so there's a good and a bad thing to that. The good thing is, is that even here during this week, if we have been trying, like 
Catherine of Siena to enter more deeply and find out more into that stillness that we were trying to practice here in a very diverse way because some of you perhaps found the stillness challenging, difficult, you could only take a little bit at a time, and some of you wanted more. So, but we formed a community of diverse spiritual kind of practice um, during this period. So um, we could hope that whatever change we personally or communally may have experienced during this week has a little ripple effect in the universe. There's a wonderful story of Ramana Maharshi, great Indian sage who lived in a state of undivided consciousness for most of his life. And uh, an ashram grew up around him and he would just, he had his little routine every day. He would go for a walk, have his meals and he was concerned about the guests but he didn't get involved in the organization at all. He used to say, People come here, and they came from all over the world. People come here looking for enlightenment. After two weeks, they get caught up in ashram politics. <laughs> but uh, he was present, and just to be in his presence was transformative. The change that had happened in him, as a young boy, in fact, uh, continued, and it sent out these waves you can still feel if you go there, actually, um, of, of uh, consciousness or being or peace that uh, affects, affected all the people who came and sat with him. And somebody asked him one day, you know, uh, Guruji, why don't you, why don't you go travelling around the world? You could, you could bring this beautiful experience that you share with just us here in this little place in southern India, but you could bring this to the whole world. He said, you know, why don't you go on tours? And he said, how do you know that I don't? <laughs> <laughs> so all change, for good or bad, uh, affects everything. It's a ripple effect. Now the political commentators are discussing what's the, what effect is the Brexit going to have on, on Britain, of course, uh, on Europe, on the world. And stock markets are crashing and the pound is, you better keep your pound in your pocket because the pound is uh, bottomed out for a while, I suppose. And uh, so what's going to be the effects of this change. And of course, one effect then produces another set of changes, ripple upon ripple upon ripple. So it's, it's uh, perhaps providential that it happened on this day, and also perhaps providential that it's on the feast of St. John the Baptist, the proto-Christian monk who lived out in the desert and became a, a, a force, a, a prophetic force of change. He was, began baptizing people and, 
And they came out to him in great numbers, we're told, in the gospel, uh, wanting to change their lives. And they said to him, what shall we do? That was their question. What shall we do? We have to change the way we're living. So, uh, we have to um, uh, accept change when it comes. Can't deny it, avoid it. We have to work with it. We have to adapt and carry on. And was where the English are at their best. David Cameron resigned today. He said he will resign in October. So he said, I'll, I will try and keep the ship steady until then. <laughs> so, uh, and quite, quite moving, really, very and quite noble in his way, you know, uh, and representing a kind of fixed point. Well, although some people thought, might say he shouldn't have called the referendum in the first place, but, but he, having instituted this change, he, he's, he, he's represented, or, and probably you know, his voice cracked just a tiny little English bit at the end, but... But basically, he, he uh, you know, he must have been going through tremendous internal emotional turmoil and, and change, and yet, uh, you know, acting uh, responsibly and acting uh, selflessly, really, to, um, to try and control and adapt the process of adaptation which he's accepted. There's no denial. He's not saying, oh, we're going to have a, a recount. Or, uh, he's accepted it. And uh, now the process of adaptation to change takes place. So I think, in a way, all of this is not a bad uh, illustration of what happens to us at the different levels at which we experience uh, change. We've been focusing on the deeper level of change that we've called transformation, not superficial or temporary, but um, a change, a, a, a place or a process of change which is actually our own nature. So change is essential. It is an essential uh, aspect of our human nature in our pilgrimage of life. I mean, even at the physical, biological level, we are constantly changing. Uh, psychologically, we are constantly changing. And the stages of development that we go through on the pilgrimage of our life, the journey of our life, the journey is not just running around in a circle. A journey is a movement, a linear journey, irreversible. Uh, we can't go back. So we are constantly moving into a new place, heading towards our destination. So this is our pilgrimage of life, and we understand this through the milestones or the stages of our development. And we've been trying to look at these stages, not just materially, 
or even psychologically, but spiritually, in the light of the contemplative wisdom. And we looked yesterday at the Christian insight into this human pilgrimage through the resurrection appearances. And the purpose of, of these accounts in the whole context of the gospel and of the call of the gospel to follow, uh, to live a certain way of life, to be followers of a way, to be people on the move, um, the whole purpose of this description of the resurrection is not that this happened in Jesus only, but that it is our destiny to be changed into a new kind of embodied person. And the, uh, the yoga and your physical presence in the beauty of this place, we've seen the weather change since we've been here, all of this uh, just serves to remind us that we are embodied people. We cannot imagine ourselves actually to be disembodied. And in the Christian vision, we are eternally embodied. The resurrection of the body, admittedly in a and obviously in a, a different form, but nevertheless still embodied. So that is, I think, what these resurrection appearances are meant to, to show us, not simply that Jesus went, came to the stage, but that we all do. This is, he's revealing something of the meaning and the nature of the human person and the human journey. And we are changed into a, being a new kind of embodied person at each stage, sharing in the life of the universe and in the resurrection, this embodied being that we become, as we see in the example of Jesus, is a full participation, a, f a full merging, in a way, into all the forces of the universe and free of all limitations. So, encountering the resurrection of Jesus, for us, as for his disciples in these stories, empowers and, com and commissions those who see him and touch him, who become aware of themselves as possessing the mind of Christ, or well, that may not happen as dramatically as it does in the resurrection appearances. You know, you won't go into your room this afternoon and Jesus will be standing there. I was once actually in India and met her many years ago. I think the person this concerns has long died. That he was he was a professor of chemistry or physics or something, and um, so he was showed some interest in our work and and uh, he said since he'd retired, 
he would um, he became had become more spiritual, had more time for this, as Indians do. The, the third stage or the, you know, the third stage of life is devoted to the spiritual life to practice. Many, well, maybe not so much now. I don't know, but in principle, many business people and couples would uh, sell up just to keep enough to live on. Uh, children are grown up and have uh, and have look after themselves, and uh, then they, they will go and live in an ashram, uh, or go spend their life on pilgrimage, devote themselves wholeheartedly in this last phase of life, while they can still get around, to, uh, to spiritual development. So anyway, he said he was doing this, and he said, and every morning, uh, after breakfast, I walk down to the bottom of my garden, and I meet Jesus there. And it was the way he said it uh, made me wonder exactly what he meant. So you sort of, it could mean, as I thought maybe, it meant he would read the Gospels or he would meditate or he would do something there. But he didn't. He actually had this experience or his conviction or however you want to describe it of meeting Jesus down at the bottom of the garden and he would walk up and down the path for 20 minutes or so every day. I don't know for how long, but... So, uh, it's probably unlikely that uh, you will have that experience. But the encounter with the risen Jesus is maybe more real than that, even. So, uh, we can't judge other people's experiences. But. So, um, the resurrection of Jesus is a full experience which empowers us and commissions us. That comes through all of the resurrection appearances. They have their lives changed by this encounter. They are running away, or they're frightened, or they're hiding in a locked room. And when this happens, they are liberated. And they found out what they are meant to do with the rest of their lives. And they do it with their whole hearts, wholeheartedly, and they do it fearlessly. And that's... The rest, that's the, the next chapter of the, of the New Testament, the Acts of the Apostles, of course, describing how this, this great change of the resurrection uh, sent this ripple effect through history, through cultures, and uh, through um, civilizations. The resurrection itself points to something else. After the resurrection, the story ends uh, with the ascension. Jesus passes from, our, from this world of forms, so we don't normally uh, bump into him anymore. Um, but he promises, nevertheless, to be present with us until the end of time. So until the end.
and we don't know what the end means or when the end will come. So all we have to accept is that he, will, he is and will be present to us. And if the end doesn't come at all, because there is no end, then he will always be present. So the resurrection uh, points to something else, to what the early Christians began to call the second coming, or the parousia. And the word parousia, which we translate usually as the second coming, um, was a, a Greek word that had quite a technical meaning. It meant uh, like a, a, an official visit. Like, oh, the king's coming tomorrow. We're going to have a parousia of the king tomorrow, or a state visit sort of thing. So it's a presence, an arrival, uh, a visit. It also has the sense of uh, a householder uh, coming home uh, to see how things are and making decisions that only the householder uh, themselves can, can make. So, as this concept uh, entered into the Christian mind in the first uh, period of the church, it was often interpreted, and still is in some parts of the southern states, uh, as literal. So there was, a, there was a very urgent, anxious, excited, adrenaline rush kind of uh, anticipation of the second coming. It's, you know, going to with my esoteric uh, gifts, I'm able to work out exactly when this is going to come. Then, although that does remain around in the Christian world to some extent, uh, theologically, uh, that literal understanding of the second coming was transcended and absorbed into in the sense it's not going to come tomorrow, we don't know when it's going to come, and Jesus himself says uh, it's not for you to know when it's going to happen. But it was understood more in terms of an interior arriving, coming within ourselves. And, and Mother Julian uh, of Norwich, also in the 14th century in England, uh, I think gives a, a, a rather softer and more domesticated understanding of this second coming than uh, we're used to. Uh, she speaks about, about God coming into, and Jesus as our mother, of course, as well, coming into the soul as, in, as if he was coming home. So knocking on the door and coming in and settling down and putting his feet up. For our Lord himself is supremely friendly and he is courteous as he is friendly. One of her very important words about the experience of Christ is courteous. And he is very courteous, she said. But she also understands that this is not just something in, the, in our imagination. It is an experience of transformation. A great oneing, she says, betwixt us and Christ. For bliss is lasting and pain is passing. 
So in the light of this uh, understanding of resurrection and the, <coughs> and the second coming, uh, we have, I think, a faith-filled faith, uh, way of understanding change in our lives. That is why there is no weakening on our part. So this is the steadiness. Okay. There's no weakening on our part. We persevere. We stay uh, on the way. There's no weakening on our part and instead, although this outer uh, self of ours may be falling into decay, the inner self is renewed day by day. Yes, the troubles which are soon over, though they weigh little, train us for the carrying of a weight of eternal glory. This word glory, which we saw yesterday, means our full development, our full potential realized, fully alive. Carrying a weight of eternal glory, which is out of all proportion to these troubles. So in the light of this process of interior change, inwardly renewed day by day, think of your meditation, inwardly renewed day by day, in the light of this experience, the external problems of our lives, even the big ones like today, uh, are relativized. We see them in perspective. We can deal with them. We can deal with external change because we are in touch with this inward change, this inward renewal, which is our very journey, our very human existence, our human uh, development. And so we have no eyes for things that are visible, but only for the things that are invisible. For visible things last only for a time and the invisible things are eternal. For we know that when the tent that we live in on earth is folded up, there is a house built by God for us, an everlasting home, not made by human hands in the heavens. So something completely other than what we do through our own efforts and our own attempts to control things. It is in this present state, so here and now, it is true, we groan, and sometimes we moan, but we groan as we wait with longing to put on our heavenly home over the other. We should like to be found wearing clothes and not without them. 
Yes, we groan and find it a burden being still in this tent, in this realm of constant change. So we're already adapting uh, to leaving the retreat tomorrow, leaving the tent of Monte Oliveto. How, how much did you enter into this tent while it was here? And did, you, did you see something in this kind of week that was different from the way we normally live? So, yes, we groan. Um, and find it a burden being still in this tent, not that we want to strip it off. So I, 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 I'll, I will leave tomorrow. I go back to... We go back to our house. We realize that we left the gas on. Uh, and uh, so we, we pick up all the... Uh, all the problems of daily life. So I'm not saying that I want, what he's saying is, I'm not saying I want to imagine a world without change, without problems. Uh, some people come and live in a monastery because they think it will be that kind of world. Everything is, everything is the same every day. Well, it isn't. It's a great deal of change. I've, I've never, I'm never less bored than in a monastery. It's co constant change, constant uh, variations on, on themes and sometimes big changes. Sometimes. So to put this, but I don't want to imagine that I'm going to be in the world without change, but I want to put this second garment over it. So I want to be able to live in this world of change with this garment, he says, it's like a kind of a cloak, uh, of the experience of inward change. In touch with that glory, that fullness of life, which is continuously emerging and developing within me. I want to put on the second garment over it and to have what must die taken up into life. So some of these things that are changing are changing forever and will disappear. But if I can uh, contain this world of external change, if you like, within this inner experience of transformation, of progress, of our journey, then even what is dying, what I've lost, What's falling away is somehow taken up into this fullness of life. And then he ends this passage, he says, this is the purpose for which God made us, and he has given us the pledge of the Spirit. So if we can see things this way, we have found meaning, we found purpose. And the, you know, your mood changes and sometimes your conviction about the meaning of your life isn't very strong. 
but the spirit is there. This is the pledge of the spirit. This in interior interiority um, of your of your spiritual practice keeps you in touch with this dimension of the spirit. That means you don't give up, uh, or if you give up, you 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 start again. So. Um, so the, um, this Christian uh, vision of, uh, of change uh, applies to the deepest uh, purpose of human existence and of human nature, which is expressed in Christ through the resurrection and through the vision of glory, or this experience of the fullness of life that is revealed within the process itself, within the process of change and of frustration and of losing, losing the vote and of losing your passport and of doing all the other things, that even within all of that frustration, there is this, this ability to touch the, um, the glory of life.